Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. What I want to do this morning as we look at this passage is to show you of the great hope that there is in Jesus Christ, and particularly on this Resurrection Sunday as as it's celebrated as Easter all around the world. Perhaps as there are some of you who, as Christians, perhaps are going through some difficulties in your life. You know, maybe uh, physical ailments and there's no end to it. Perhaps it's relationship issues with, you know, with your children, with your spouse, with your workmates, with your Uh, even your church family perhaps, and you're just discouraged. I want to give you hope. I want to remind you of the hope that we have in this great God and Savior, our risen Lord Jesus. Perhaps there's some of you who are sitting here who are not Christians, who are not believers, and you're fairly content with life the way it is. But what I pray would happen as we go through this passage is that you wouldn't be content with that false hope that you may be living with. Because if for you the only thing that you have is this life, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, it's a pitiable life. You know, you might as well, yeah, just continue to enjoy life, but this life is just so short. But what I pray is that your eyes would be open to the glories of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done and that you would put your faith in him. Perhaps there's some of you here who are doing well as Christians. Then for you too, you want to listen to this because we all need reminding of this great hope that we have in our Lord Jesus. And, and what is the hope? that we celebrate during Easter time. Now the book of John is, you know, historically it's been divided into two big portions. From verses, uh, from chapters 1 to 12, it's generally called as the book of the signs. Because the, the book of John, this gospel of John, is written to show how Jesus is the Son of God, to to show that he is God. That's why the Gospel of John is written. And the first 12 chapters is the book of signs or the book of miracles, where Jesus does these different miracles that point to his deity, that point to the fact that he is the Son of God. And then really, chapters chapters 13 to 27 is called Uh, historically called as the book of glory because it then deals with the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, the the glorification of Jesus. So it's the 12 to 27 is called the book of uh, glory or the book of exaltation. And so what the passage that we have here this morning, it is really the last sign or the, the last miracle that Jesus will perform. In fact, Uh, What is even interesting is John, at the very start of his book, 
you know, he introduces this whole gospel saying that Jesus is the light of the world that will shine in the world. But darkness is going to try and, and, and extinguish this, this light. But darkness will never be able to put out this light. And that's what we see all throughout this book. And even while Jesus shows these signs and proves his deity again and again and again, there's people trying to stone him and, and kill him. And finally, this is the climax of it all. The very last sign before we get into the section of his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And this, this particular sign is probably one of the most spectacular of his miracles. And you will see that as we go through why this miracle is just so spectacular. And it is with Jesus performing this miracle that finally he's taken to be, uh, the, the things are set in motion where Jesus then goes to be crucified on that cross. I've titled this morning's message as Jesus, the Resurrection and the Life. And by way of outline, I've got three points. The revelation of Jesus that we'll look at in verses 17 through to 27. Then we'll look at the demonstration of Jesus. That's from 28 all the way to 44. And then from 45 to 53, we look at the prophecy regarding Jesus. And what I hope again, like I said before, is to remind you of the hope, or if you do not have hope, to again give you the hope that we have in Jesus Christ on this Resurrection Sunday. So firstly, the, the revelation of Jesus, verses 17 through 27. Now, I won't be going through every single verse and uh, hashing out every little detail. Some of it will skim and some areas will um, stop and look at what we can gain from it. Now verse 17 says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Lazarus, he was a dear friend of Jesus along with his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And in Verse 3 and verse 5, it tells us clearly that Jesus really loved this family. Jesus loved Lazarus and loved Mary and loved Martha. He was a very dearly loved family by Jesus. And so word has now come to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. While Jesus is ministering in a place far away from where they are. When Jesus first hears of this news, he says in verse 4 that this sickness is not going to end in death ultimately. Instead, this sickness will be used for the purpose of displaying the glory of God and the glory of God the Father and the glory of God the Son. So Jesus says this and and what's strange is what Jesus does after this. After he gets the news of this, uh, the sickness of this beloved friend of his. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. It says there, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in that place where he was. I mean, you kind of think, Jesus loves Lazarus very much. And you would think when a friend that is so dear is so sick, and you can do something about it, Jesus would rush to be there. And we see quite the opposite. He actually remains for another two days. Now you might be thinking, how is this loving? How is this being loving to this family? Well, somehow, Jesus is going to display the glory, the, the, the weightiness of God through this sickness. Somehow he's going to do that. But that display of glory is also going to be for their good, for this family's good. In fact, as we read on, we realize that good that he had for this family is nothing but a deeper faith in Jesus, a deeper hope in Jesus itself. So Jesus stays for two more days to love them. And then finally, when he gets there, four days have passed since Lazarus has been dead and buried in the tomb. Now what's interesting is that there is evidence that in the third century, the, the Jewish rabbis, they, they taught that the, after a person has died, that their soul will just hover over the, the dead body for the first three days. That, and so there was this superstition that somehow, for the first three days, a person could somehow be resuscitated because apparently the soul was hovering over the dead body. But by the fourth day, when the body starts decomposing, the soul would finally leave from there. Now, we don't know for certain if this superstition was around during Jesus' time. In the first century, um, and whether or not that's why Jesus intentionally delayed uh, and came only after four days, well, we don't know that for sure. But what is clear is this, that when Jesus gets there on the fourth day, the body of Lazarus, it's already undergoing decay. It's already beginning to, to smell, according to verse 39. So in other words, Lazarus, by the time Jesus got there after four days, is absolutely dead. I mean, his body is now withering away. And there is no doubt that he is dead. And by any account, this would mean that unless there was a divine power, it would be impossible for Lazarus to be brought back to life. Now verse 18 and 19 say that many Jews, they, they come from the big city Jerusalem to this small village of Bethany, which was about two miles away, a little more than three kilometers. Now normally, so many people from the big city of Jerusalem wouldn't come to a little town like Bethany, this little village like Bethany for somebody's death. 
And so what this would suggest is this was a family of pro- prominence. A, a, you know, a, a, a family that high, high social standing. In fact, this is also more likely a very rich family, not a poor family, but a very rich family. And, and there's some clue to that when we read in the next chapter where Mary then pours that ointment on Jesus' feet. And it says that the ointment itself cost a year's worth of labor. See, no, no poor person would be able to do that. So this was a very you know, prominent family, a very rich family, a, a well-known family. So, so many people from the city Jerusalem is making this small trip about three kilometers or a little bit more than that to, to come and uh, be with the family and continue on with the mourning process. So there's a lot of people, a lot of people mourning. Verse 20 says, Now Martha hears that Jesus is coming and she slips out from the crowd to meet Jesus while her sister remained in the house along with everyone else and continued on with the mourning process. And when Martha, she gets to Jesus, and when she meets him, when she hears that Jesus is coming, she goes out and she slips out from that crowd and she goes and meets him. This is what she says in verse 21 and 22. It says, Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Mary's brokenhearted. You know, she's and, and grieving for the loss of her brother. But she's not coming to Jesus and rebuking him. Look, you should have been here, kind of almost scolding Jesus. And we know that, you know, Jesus stayed only for two days. But by the time Jesus got there, it says, Lazarus was dead for four days. So even if Jesus came two days before, Lazarus was, would still have been dead. So what she's, she's not rebuking Jesus. She's simply expressing her grief. You know, most likely, even when Jesus wasn't there and expecting Jesus to come, she would have probably, when she was with uh, Lazarus, oh, if Jesus is here, he, you know, he'd be able to save you. And so that grief is playing out. And when she sees Jesus, she's just expressing that. But what we notice is in that expression of grief, she's also expressing her confidence in the Lord Jesus. Because she's saying, Lord, I I know that if, if you had been here, you would have been able to save my brother. And then the very next verse that we read She says, though even now, what she's saying is, I I still believe in you and that God can work through you uh, in in a mighty way. So I haven't lost my confidence in you, but, uh, but I am grieving because my brother is dead. So Jesus now slowly turns Martha's thoughts to the resurrection, to build her up in her faith. Jesus said to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And then 
Verse 24, Martha says to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, Martha knew what the Old Testament taught about the resurrection. She believed that on the last day, all of God's people would be resurrected. Here's a few Old Testament passages that talk about the resurrection. Job 19, 25, and 26 that we read this morning. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live and their bodies shall rise. And no doubt, you know, she would have even heard Jesus teaching on this subject of resurrection, that he would raise the dead on the last day in John 5, 21, for example, and John 5, 25 to 27. So now that her brother is dead, Martha tells Jesus, Yeah, you know, you're telling me that he will rise again. She's saying, yeah, I know. I know my brother will be raised up on the last day like everyone else. What she doesn't realize is that what Jesus meant by your brother will rise again is not just on the last day, but he was going to do something more immediately as well. Jesus is gently leading this woman to a revelation of himself. From this general abstract belief of what will happen on on that last day to a more personalized belief in who Jesus is, that he is the very foundation on which resurrection rests. Jesus is leading Martha to, to give her a bigger picture of who he is a greater revelation of himself. Why? So that by this revelation, she would find great comfort and hope. And all of that would come to rest in Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Notice Jesus is not saying, I will be the resurrection and the life, uh, you know, sometime in the future. He says, I am in the present, right now and forevermore. I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying that he has life in of himself. That he is the very definition and the source of life. That the full and blessed eternal life of God is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. That he is also the source of that life for everyone else. In fact, in the previous chapter, John 10.10, Jesus says the reason why he came to this world is to give life, an abundant life. 
So what Jesus is saying here is that the resurrection and eternal life, they are so associated with him that apart from Jesus, there is no eternal life and there is no resurrection. That Jesus is not simply the agent or, or the means of eternal life and resurrection. It, it's more so the idea that without Jesus, the only thing that remains is death and no hope. That there would be no hope beyond the grave without Jesus. But with Jesus present, there is assurance of resurrection and eternal life. What Jesus wants, her to, wants Martha to understand is that Jesus is the very source of resurrection and life. And he's the only one that can provide it. That's what he's trying to show Mary, Martha. Now the second part of verse 25 and 26 correspondingly explain what Jesus meant by I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. What is the explanation for it? The last part of verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. What he's saying is whoever believes in Jesus, even though there will be a physical death to them, a physical, their physical life will come to an end, all those who believe in Jesus, their bodies will be raised back to life and they will have their physical existence again. That death will not be the end of that person for all who trust in Jesus. And why is this a reality for anyone who believes in Jesus? Because Jesus is the only one who has the power to resurrect a person on the last day. So he's, he's making this very, trying to make this clear to Martha. And what does he mean by I am the life? The explanation for that? The next line in verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is saying, whoever believes in him and has eternal life as a result, they shall never die. Not that they won't physically die, but this eternal life that is given to them when they believe in Jesus, it, this eternal life cannot be destroyed by death. It is indestructible, this life that Jesus gives. Why? Because Jesus is the life. And Jesus gives this eternal life to all who believe in him. This kind of, the kind of life a believer has is a life that death cannot destroy. Why? Because the believer is united to the one who is the life. So while a believer might experience physical death, as one commentator put it, Death simply becomes a gateway for further life and fellowship with God. It's not an end, it's just a gateway for more life and fellowship with God. And what that means is that the resurrection life, the, the eternal life, it's not something that the believer gets on the last day. For those who have put their trust in Jesus, this eternal life is a present reality right now. 
So what Jesus is telling Martha is, don't let your hope be in a mere confession or a certain doctrine about something on the last day. No, let your hope be in me, Jesus. I am your hope and comfort. I am Lord over life and death, and I am the source of eternal life. And you don't have to wait till the end of human history to enjoy the benefits of my power. It's available right now. And so Jesus is making clear that everyone who believes in Jesus can live in the power of this eternal life. So then Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? You see, he's not asking Martha if, if Martha believes that Jesus will raise her brother from the dead. That's not the question. No, Jesus is asking if she believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And therefore, the only one who can grant eternal life and resurrection. So it's very critical how, how Martha responds, how she answers this question. Martha answers, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. She says, yes, Lord, I, I believe. It, it's uh, emphatic in the original. Yes, I, I, I firmly believe, and I will continue to do so. It's a, it's a settled faith. It's a settled uh, belief in Jesus. Now, it's become clear, it becomes clear later that you know, Martha hasn't fully understood all the implications of what Jesus has said, because it's the same Martha who then tells Jesus, when Jesus is going to open the tomb and raise Lazarus, God, um, Lord, his body is stinking. So, so, so you, you can realize she hasn't fully realized all the implications. But in as much as she can understand, she believes. And she has a strong and, and genuine faith in Jesus at this point. She, she says, I believe by virtue of the fact, and she mentions a couple of things here, that, that you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah, the, 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 the promised one, the one who would, the Savior who would come to save his people. I believe that you are him. I believe that you are the Son of God who is coming into this world. That, that you are God himself who has been sent into this world to accomplish your task. For those of you sitting here, I want to ask you the same question. Do you believe us? Do you believe this about Jesus? See, this is an important question for all of us to answer because it has eternal ramifications. So Martha now has moved from just a mere belief of what will happen in some distant future 
She now has a bigger and a deeper understanding in who Jesus is as Jesus has revealed himself. And her confidence and her hope is in Jesus fully now. And by this confession of faith, what Martha is going to see next is that even her brother Lazarus, who was dead, is not beyond the powers of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. So Jesus is now going to demonstrate who he he has just said he is. He's going to show his power to give life and really display his glory, display the very glory of God. And, and, And what this miracle even serves is as a preview for what Jesus will do for anyone who trusts in Jesus. And here we come to our second point, the demonstration of Jesus in verses 28 through to 24. Now verse 28 to 30 tells us that after Martha's confession, Jesus asked Martha to go and get Mary. So Martha goes, uh, you know, and she privately goes and tells Mary, oh, oh the, the teacher is here, so that Mary can also have a private meeting with Jesus. But what happened was, as Mary tried to slip out from the crowd that was all there, that was mourning, many of the people there, when they saw her leave, they followed her thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now, historically, what we know... This is something that's important just to understand what's going on here. The way the the Jews mourn during Jesus' time, it's quite different to say how we mourn even now in our Western society. You know, generally we're, we're generally quiet and subdued in the way we mourn and grieve over the loss of someone. But for the Jews during this time, they expressed their, their grief very publicly and, uh, and mourned very loudly. Especially the first seven days, there was intense wailing and mourning and, uh, and even shrieking. In fact, they would even hire musicians and professional mourners to, to create the mood, so to speak. And it was a way to help everyone mourn well. It is said that even the poorest families would hire at least two flutists and a professional wailing woman for this time. Now remember, this is a prominent family, a rich family. So quite likely that they would have hired a lot of musicians and a lot of professional mourners So there's a lot of mourning and squealing and and wailing and all that going on. And and lots of people there to provide support, to help with the mourning process. Which is why this is still going on on the fourth day as well. And so when Mary slips out, the mourners think, oh, Mary's going to the tomb. We've got to provide support for her there as well to help her mourn well. So the whole crowd follows her. But Mary's not going to the tomb. She's, she's going to meet Jesus. And when she sees Jesus, she falls at his feet and says the same thing that Martha said to Jesus when 
she first met him expressing her grief. Verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. She doesn't say much more than that and then she begins, begins to weep even more. Now I want to focus on just Jesus' response here in verses 33 to the first part of verse 38. Let me read that. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, she was deeply moved in his, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Now twice we see that term, deeply moved, in verse 33 and verse 38. And some translations even have the term that Jesus groaned within himself. But that's not the best translation. See, outside the New Testament, this word is used in the original to describe the, the, the snorting of horses. And, and this is then metaphorically applied to, the, to humans to denote anger and outrage, a, a kind of indignation. And many commentators agree that the word should be translated this way in verse 33 and again in verse 38. In fact, the German translations of the Bible actually have this word translated as just that, as, as outrage, that Jesus was outraged or Jesus was angry. So Jesus is outraged and angry within himself, and he's greatly troubled. But what is Jesus so angry about? I mean, he's, he sees Mary and, and the, the rest of the mourners weeping and wailing loudly. Is it because now Jesus is self-reflective and thinking, oh, I just came too late to save Lazarus, I could have saved him? No, Jesus already knows that this sickness was to display his glory and the Father's glory. And, and everything is going according to his plan and he is going to raise up Lazarus. So then is it all the noise then? Uh, no, Jesus is certainly not so petty. The reason Jesus is so angry is because of the whole scene of death and grief and anguish and pain that he sees. See, we know from the same book in John 1.3, where John says, all things were created by him. Who is the hymn referring to? The word who is Jesus Christ himself. So when Jesus the creator, who had taken on human flesh now, he walks on earth, he sees chaos and anguish in the world caused by this ugly enemy called death, which has entered into his world as the universal consequence of sin. Think about it. When God first made man, he created man with a body and a soul, soul, spirit, all the same. So there's the outer man and the inner man. The body is what is 
visible, what we see on the outside, and the spirit or the soul, on the other hand, is what we cannot see. It's what makes each human being that unique kind of person or personality. It's what makes us different from each other because we all have these, this soul or this spirit. But what we need to understand even more so is that God put this spirit not just to make us unique from each other, but he gave it to us so that we could be connected with him. You see, Jesus is spirit. And so he gives us a spirit so that we can connect with him. So originally, when God, who is life himself and the source of all light, created, source of all life, created man and breathed into him the breath of life, man came alive in the fullest sense, the very life that Jesus is going to give. Physically, he was alive. But he wasn't alive just physically, he was alive spiritually as well. He was connected to his creator, experiencing unhindered fellowship with God. But man rebelled and sinned against his creator. And as a result, death came to man and into this world. And spiritually speaking, man became spiritually dead. His spirit could no longer be connected to his creator God in this unhindered fellowship. But it was not just uh, spiritual death, there was also physical death. Because of man's sin, his body also began to age and there was sickness and ultimately physical death resulted. So ever since then, sin became a part of man's nature. Every human being is born in sin and therefore commits sin. But the reality is also that every human being is also born spiritually dead, not in fellowship with God. And eventually, you know what happens? They also die physically. This comes to all mankind. And so as Jesus, who created all things, sees sin and death and the havoc it has caused, he is angry. Because sin and death were not part of his beautiful creation. And he is going to destroy death. But not only is he angry, John 11.35 says that Jesus also wept. Now why is Jesus shedding tears? Is he missing his friend Lazarus? No, he's, he's going to raise him from the dead soon, so it's not that. Then why is Jesus weeping? Again, because of the same scene. Because of the very presence of sin and death and anguish and pain and even unbelief and spiritual darkness and deadness of the people around him. 
What his weeping shows is that Jesus cares for his creation. He cares for the people around. How wonderful, isn't he? On the one side, he's indignant. He cannot stand the sin and the death and all the havoc it has brought about, and he's going to destroy it. On the other side, he's also deeply caring for the people. Because he sees the plight they're in and the pain and the anguish and the sin and the death that they're facing. And he knows exactly what mankind needs. And he knows that there is nothing man can do about it. So Jesus also weeps. And as the crowd sees Jesus weep this way, there's a mixed reaction. In verse 36 it says, the people mistook his tears thinking, oh, look how much he loved Lazarus. Yes, Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters dearly, but he wasn't crying because he missed Lazarus. He was crying because of the whole scene. And then some other people were puzzled as well in verse 37 as to why Jesus, who healed a blind man, couldn't keep Lazarus from dying. Now Jesus moves towards the tomb of Lazarus and verse 39 again says he's deeply moved or in other words, he's actually angry and outraged again as he's just at the tomb. Why? Because as the source of Jesus is angry and outraged because as the one who is the life and the source of life, he's preparing to confront death itself this ugly enemy. As one commentator put it, like a wrestler preparing for the contest as the enemy death stands before him. Verse 39 and 40 tells us that when Jesus asked for the tombstone to be rolled away, that Martha interjects saying, Lord, Lazarus' body, it's decaying and, and stinking now. And so Jesus reminds her, did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? And verse 41 and 42, they roll the stone away. Then Jesus publicly thanks God for listening to his prayer and he makes it public so that the people can hear this as well and they can believe in what Jesus is going to do. And after that, verses 43 and 44, let me just quickly read that. When he had said these things, he cried out, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Jesus, with a loud voice, it's not just... Oh, Lazarus, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus comes back to life. He walks out of the tomb. Now, does this remind you of anything? Especially us who've been going through the book of Genesis? The power of God's word. At creation, the word went from God, and God said, let there be and there was. 
That same word which John says, who was in the beginning with God and was God, and is now made in, has now made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, he shouts out and he says, let there be life and there is life. And the decay is reversed and, and, the, and the body is made whole. And what this shows is Jesus' power over death. God's glory is put on full display, proving he is who he says he is. He is the resurrection and the life. And it's also a glimpse of what Jesus will do to those who believe in Jesus. I mean, for those of who, us who are Christians, those who already believe in Jesus, we know that Jesus called, out from, called us out from spiritual death. Ephesians 2.5 says, We who were dead in our sins made us alive together with Christ. You see, he's, he's given us spiritual life, eternal life, to fellowship with him forever. And we await that day that even after we die, when our bodies too will be resurrected anew, and we will be with our great God and our Savior. That's the demonstration of Jesus. Now, very quickly, my last point. The prophecy concerning Jesus, 45 to 53. Again, the people have a mixed response to Jesus. And really what he has done, the miracle that he has done. Verse 45 says that many of the Jews who followed Mary were present there and they believed in Jesus. Now you would think that a, that, that a miracle like this, as grand as a, as a rotting corpse, coming back to life, would cause everyone to believe. That's not the case. There are some who, who don't believe in Jesus. Verse 46 says that those who don't believe in Jesus, they... They go up to the Pharisees, the, the Jewish leaders of the day who are always out to get Jesus and tell the Pharisees all that Jesus has done. And this now calls for a council. This, this council was the Sanhedrin and we read about this in verse 47 and 48. That Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish court within the nation of Israel. Remember, during this time, the Roman Empire has, is over the nation of Israel, but they've given some freedoms uh, to operate, and within that freedom, the highest court within the nation of Israel is the Sanhedrin. This council would make the final decision regarding the political and religious issues within the nation of Israel, obviously under the authority of the Roman Empire. So this council comes together to discuss the issue at hand. This, this man, Jesus, oh, he's performing many signs, many miracles. They were concerned about him. What, what do we do about him? They were concerned that if Jesus continues to perform these signs and miracles, that everyone would believe in him. Now you say, what, what's wrong with everyone believing in Jesus at this time? 
Well, here's the thing. If people think that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah, the one who has promised to save his people and perhaps even rule all the nations and be a military and political leader for them, then as word gets around and, and that zeal sparks among the people and it spreads among the people and everyone starts believing, there's going to be a political uprising. And so then the Roman authorities who would fear such kind of uprisings would then have to come and, and, and take away the position of these leaders as, as council leaders and even take over the entire nation completely without any freedoms. Saying, no, you know, there's too much uprising going on, no more. Council out, you have no more freedoms. Rome is going to control everything in this land. So really, what, what these leaders are concerned about, they're not concerned about the spiritual welfare of the people. They're not concerned about the truth of Jesus. They were more concerned about their position and their power. And now the chairman of the council, who was the high priest, and at this time it's Caiaphas, the ruling chairman of the council, we read of him in verse 49 and 50. Caiaphas tells the council, essentially what he says is, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. And then he offers them a solution. So Caiaphas says in verse 30, it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So remember, while the Sanhedrin had a lot of power, there was one thing that they couldn't do, even with the people of Israel, that is, they couldn't execute capital punishment. Only the Roman authorities could do that. So Caiaphas is essentially saying, we're going to come up with a plan to divert all of Rome's attention away from our nation to this one man, Jesus the troublemaker. We'll plan to pit this man against Rome so that they will eventually come after him and even kill him because we can't do it ourselves. We'll plan to pit this man against Rome so that they will eventually kill him. And why? What is their reasoning? Or what is Caiaphas' reasoning? He says, it is better that one man dies for the nation than the whole nation itself perish. In other words, Caiaphas is saying, let Jesus be the sacrifice for the sake of this nation so that the nation would be saved. But right after this, Apostle John, he adds a commentary to what Caiaphas has just said. He says in verse 51 and 52, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest, that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. See, Caiaphas was operating like an Old Testament prophet, prophesying something that was about to come true. Now, while Caiaphas, in what he said, there was malicious intent, 
and he was saying what he said only to save his own skin and the, the skin of the other leaders. God is operating from behind the scenes such that Caiaphas's evil words would be used by God to bring about the good that he had always intended. That is the death of Jesus to save his people. And not only Israel, but people from all other nations. Caiaphas meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And as we read the rest of the scripture, what we see is that Jesus did exactly that. That he actually died to save his people. The same Jesus who was angry at sin and death and all its consequences. The same Jesus who wept seeing the anguish and the pain and the misery that sin and death had left behind. He willingly went to that cross to save his people. The same Jesus who is the creator of this world, who has life in himself, who is the source of life for everyone, who is in himself God, came into this world and took on human form and lived among people like you and me. And then he died as a substitute. He took on himself the the sin of his people and the just wrath of God against sin was fully poured out on Jesus. And Jesus paid the price for the sin of his people by dying on the cross. But three days after he was buried, Jesus burst from the tomb because death could not hold down the one who is himself the author of life. He defeated the last enemy called death and came back to life, proving he is God and proving that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay the price for the sin of his people. And now he has gone back to heaven to be with God the Father. But he will return once again to set, this, set things right in this world where those who do not trust him and continue to be in sin and continue to rebel against him will suffer eternal death forever separated from this great and glorious God and eternally suffering in their sin in the lake of fire. But for those who put their trust in Jesus, Jesus will return. And even those who have died will be raised to life and they will be given resurrected bodies. Bodies that will never decay. Bodies that will never die. They will never face sin. They will never face death. And they will forever be with this great and wonderful God. This is what we celebrate at Easter. That Jesus died for the sin of his people. That he rose again, defeating sin and death. And he will once again come back to gather his people and cast away those who do not trust in him. The question for you today is the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? 
Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Each of you sitting here in this building. Perhaps you've never thought about Jesus, never known about Jesus, never thought about putting your trust in him. Perhaps it's all the sin that you are caught up in that prevents you from coming to him. Perhaps it's all the comforts and the attractions in this world that is keeping you. But whether you realize it or not, the Bible says that you are born spiritually dead. In fact, all mankind, because of their sin, is spiritually dead. And you know, as you get older, your body will start getting weaker. And it'll, it'll start, it won't be quite like how when you were young. And there will be sickness. And finally, it'll head to physical death. And there is nothing that you can do to stop that. Absolutely nothing. But Jesus, the one who is the resurrection and the life, has provided a way for you to have life. To have eternal life. Life to the fullest, physical and spiritual life, to enjoy this life with this great God for all eternity. Now you say, so, okay, what do I need to do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done. You see, every other religion will say, you do this and you do that and you climb Mount Everest and walk on coal and do all these good works and whatnot and perhaps you will get saved. But you will not be saved. It will not be able to save you from your sin and death that is coming for you. But only Jesus says, I have done it. I have conquered sin and death for you so that you can be saved. Now, will you believe in me? It's really that simple. There's nothing else that you need to do. Because Jesus has done it all for you. See, that, that, that's why we call it the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why it is such good news in this broken world of sin and misery and sickness and death. And if you say you believe, then turn away from your sin. Turn away from living for yourself and live for Jesus for the rest of your life. For that is the very evidence that you truly believe in Jesus. Now for those of us who are Christians, for those who have put their trust in Jesus. This is why Easter is such a good reminder for us of the hope that we have in Jesus. Whether you're battling with physical illness or having problems with relationships, your children, spouse, church family, workmate, remember this. Jesus has conquered sin and death and your sins are forgiven. And you already, if you believe Jesus, you already possess that eternal life. That resurrection power resides in you now. And so you're no longer a slave to sin. 
You have the power to overcome sin. No matter what difficulty you may have with people, you don't have to retaliate. You don't even have to fear death because Jesus has defeated death. So continue to trust in Jesus, believers, and reflect Jesus' character to others, knowing that Jesus is in the process of making all things right. This is our eternal hope. And no one, no one can take this hope away from us because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word by which we can understand. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for giving us life through your precious son who died on the cross on our behalf and then rose again on the third day, giving us this eternal life. Lord, we long for that day when you will come to take us with you and everything will be set right. But help us in the meantime to to remain faithful to you and to serve you faithfully. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who has not put their trust in Jesus, that they would humble themselves. That they would realize that dead corpses cannot just simply rise from the dead. That they would open their eyes to what you have done. That they would see the wonderful and merciful God you are, the loving God you are, the powerful God you are, the God who weeps for the people. And they would humble themselves and they would turn to Jesus and put their trust in him and forever continue to do that. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do a work in us in all that we have heard this morning. For we pray all this in Jesus Christ's precious name.